0: Michael, we usually give our recommendations at the end of the show, but this one can't wait. Have you read Jonathan Wells?
1: I have. In fact, he published a great memoir in 2021, The Skinny.
0: Well, Z Books has just published his debut novel, The Sterns Are Listening, and it's the kind of story we love. It's protagonists are New Yorkers, Benjamin and Dita Stern, who are contending with a moment in life when their children are grown and out of the house. Their careers haven't quite turned out as they might have hoped, and they're trying to figure out what it all means.
1: Meanwhile, their son, Giorgio, returns at last. He had left home at 17 when he had a violent episode at school and was sent away.
0: It's a story full of drama and heart, tinged with the right amount of humor. The Sterns are listening, by Jonathan Wells, published by Z-Books and available at bookstores everywhere. Happy Saturday, it's November 18th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London.
1: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City.
0: Right here in the UK, it's dark at 4pm. Thanksgiving is approaching. We're living in a state of constant precipitation, but joyfulness is here in the form of a new issue of airmail, Michael.
1: It is. And there's lots to talk about. Kim Kardashian is everywhere and has made a fortune on skims, her undergarments line. Ashley. But now Flora Gill has a report on why all of us will soon be unable to avoid Kardashian's nipples, she'll explain. Then, on the subject of divas, it's been impossible to avoid the new memoir by Barbara Streisand, yet there's one problem with the book, which clocks in at almost a thousand pages. There's no index. No way to find out if you are one of the seemingly thousands of people she mentions. Well, here at Airmail, we have solved that for you, and George Khalidrakis is going to tell us all about our latest public service, the Streisand Index. Ashley, up to see if you're mentioned. And finally, on the subject of obsessions, you have no doubt seen the news that Joaquin Phoenix stars as Napoleon in Ridley Scott's new epic film about the French Emperor. And Sam Wasson, who knows the history of Hollywood like few other writers, is here to tell us all about how the famed director Stanley Kubrick tried to make his Napoleon, yet in the process suffered his own creative waterloo. Ashley, Where would you like to begin today, darling?
0: What do you think? Streisand, nipples, and Napoleon? We're obviously starting with nipples. As evidenced by the fact that I'm wearing skims right now against even my own wishes, you can't escape Kim Kardashian, and Flora Gill is here to tell us about her latest invention. Flora is a London-based writer for Airmail, among many other outlets. We always love her contrarian point of view. Welcome, Flora.
1: Hi, Flora.
2: Hi, Flora. Hello.
0: Okay, Michael, you can take a seat for this one, although we love your nipples, for the record.
1: Whoa, ladies, I'm just going to, like, listen for a minute.
2: I always get to come on and have these conversations that, Michael, you always feel slightly out of your depth on. I love it.
1: I'm just glad we're not filming these because it's another one where I'd just be sitting here blushing. But go ahead. I'm here to learn.
0: Okay, Flora, nipples used to be something that women, at least, concealed. This is before the Free the Nipple movement, but pasties were invented for a reason. We did not want to be showing these things around every time we went to the Tesco, okay? Times have changed. As evidenced by Kim Kardashian's latest invention, which is
2: it is a beautiful push up bra that includes attached nipple details. So, in her words, you can look like you're cold even when global warming is going on, and you can appear perky even in the warmest room.
0: Is this an attempt to expose and flaunt one's sexuality? Like, what is this all about?
2: I don't know if I go that far. By that logic, you could say that any push-up bra was that or any women's clothes that showed your legs. It feels so unusual, as you said, to begin with, because we're all so used to trying to cover up in the past any sign, but actually nipples themselves have gone in and out of fashion. I remember there was an episode of Sex and the City when I was younger, where they did have little attachable nipples that they put on underneath their clothes to have them have erect nipples. In the 90s, we all remember Kate Moss wearing see-through dresses that displayed all of her features. And even now, now the 90s fashion is back on trend again. You have people like Florence Pugh displaying very visible nipples. I think it makes sense. I think Kim Kardashian is on the money with her latest invention. Have you tried this out? I have not. And I can tell you why not, because Kim Kardashian has so got her hard nipples on the pulse that it is practically impossible to get one of the elusive bras that they've sold out absolutely everywhere. I mean, luckily for me, I have not the largest chest size. I say luckily for me, not luckily for me, but (laughs) I regularly wear tops that might display my nipples. And I think it's great. I'm not cutting holes in them. It's not just nipple out.
0: But this is obviously for somebody who wants her breasts to be paid attention to, right? Like this is not for the shrinking violet.
2: No, and I'm not sure it's going to become a must have for every woman across the country. One of the things I think is interesting and I don't think it's something that Kim Kardashian would have predicted or I don't think it's something that she made the item of clothing for, but a lot of women that have had mastectomies or women that have had to have their breasts removed for whatever reason have been praising the item because they want the option to show a little nipple or they feel much more confident being able to do that. And this allows them the opportunity to do that so i think it can be for all different types of people
1: could it be for lauren sanchez
2: for who lauren
1: sanchez jeff bezos wife or soon to be wife she seems all over the news this week with her vogue photos just wondering but i don't think she needs any more focus on her
2: i haven't paid enough attention to her chest i'm afraid (laughs) that's just you michael
1: ladies, I'll go back to myself. You guys go do your thing.
0: Probably for the best, Michael. I can't unsee the photos of her that I just saw in Vogue. It's like running through my mind like a carousel. Flora, it's interesting though Like at this moment in our culture, how can I phrase this delicately? Do you think that the showing of nipples is a feminist gesture or the opposite?
2: I think a lot of things can be feminist gestures. I think feminism is being able to do whatever you want as a woman and having the same equal right to do it as a man. That doesn't mean you have to have your nipples out. That doesn't mean you should be forced to not have your nipples out. So I am all in favor of a lot of the free the nipple movement. I have friends, for example, that have been shamed in public for breastfeeding, which is completely ridiculous. I'm not sure that this brand needs to be making a feminist statement one way or the other. I think it's definitely a thing that's put on women that everything we wear, everything we do, is over analyzed and feels like it has to be making a point. Whereas men just get to talk and dress. I don't think it's any different to a man having lots of their top buttons undone and displaying all their chests. Or maybe stuffing their tights. I don't know if many men are wearing tights, actually.
1: (laughs) Can I ask a question?
2: Join us in our nipple chat, Michael.
1: in the nipple chat room so honestly like the old joke like my eyes are up here right so is a man supposed to comment on this now i mean what is expected oh he must be wearing the new kim kardashian bra no these are natural how would one navigate this do you think
2: i think going up to a woman and saying nice nips is going to get you in a lot of trouble i think in general you can still assume that when a woman's talking to you she probably wants eye contact i mean in the same way that i might wear a pair of trousers that makes my derriere look particularly good i I'm still not sure I want every man to comment on it, even if the occasional one notices it. I would altogether not go around trying to figure out if people are or aren't wearing Kim Kardashian's bras. I think it's going to be a dangerous game to be playing. Flora, are nipples the new glutes? I think that's a really good question. I think it's up and coming. It's they're on the trend. They're on the rise. Yes.
0: You know what I hate about this? I'm sorry to be grouchy. It's like nothing is ever enough. Just when I get my glutes in order and my arms are looking good and sleeveless, now I have to worry about my nipples being permanently erect. Where does it all end?
2: Or do you not have to worry? Because you can just fake it. Fair enough. I guess this is a service
0: to all women. Like now the problem of erect nipples has been eradicated. Great. Thank you, Kim.
2: You don't have to contour your nipples. You can fake it. But the point is there's options for everyone. If you want it, you can have it. If you have big boobs and you've always been jealous of people that can look like they're not wearing a bra now you can but also you can think this is ridiculous this is definitely not an item that everyone has to agree on we don't all have to come to terms with it you can also think it's ridiculous think it's not for you and ignore it like a lot of people do with kim kardashian
0: this whole conversation flora has just left me wanting her to go back to her work on the criminal justice system like (laughs) anyway but i guess these are the problems she feels compelled to solve well thank you so much for your story and your analysis (laughs) And we'll talk to you again very soon.
2: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, Flora.
0: All right, Michael. I'm not changing my ways on that one. Nice try, Kim.
1: I love that we keep referring to it as an invention, like she's Thomas Edison. But I mean, look, she's laughing out of the way to banks. So maybe it is an invention. She's inventing new ways to print money.
0: Okay, moving on. Let's talk about some headier matters. Should we move on to Napoleon, speaking of a kind of bizarre parallel?
1: Speaking of people who want to conquer the world, yeah.
0: Speaking of people who want to conquer the world, why don't we move on to Napoleon? Sam Lawson is here to remind us that, in fact, Ridley Scott was not the first to dream of making a movie about the great emperor.
1: Yeah, and there's no better person to report on this story than Sam, who's an expert on all things Hollywood and a writer at large for email.
0: He's the author of several books, including Hollywood, The Oral History, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood, and Improv Nation, How We Made a Great American Art. Welcome, Sam Watson. Okay, Sam, everyone's talking about the new Ridley Scott version of Napoleon, but you, of course, are thinking about something else. In fact, Stanley Kubrick's version of it. Tell us how you got there.
3: I got there because Ash and Airmail, Ash Carter said, are you thinking about Kubrick's Napoleon? And I said, actually, yes, I am. Whenever these giant historical subjects come up, oftentimes directors get stage fright and start obsessing about the wrong things, mainly historical accuracy. And forget about the other things, the reasons people want to go to the movies, story, character, style, all these other things. And Kubrick famously is the one to have been felled by his obsession with the wrong details of Napoleon. So I just started thinking, hopefully, God, I I hope Ridley Scott doesn't succumb to the historian's illness. Just tell a great story. True or not?
0: When I first saw this on the airmail platform, I thought, like, did I completely miss something? We should say that Stanley Kubrick never actually made the version of Napoleon that he set out to make.
3: Yes, he was so obsessed. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Kubrick never made that Napoleon. He worked for years obsessively. And Kubrick love in the world is so strong that he's actually almost rewarded for never having made the movie, as if his dedication is so intense and complete that he loved the subject too much to have ever made it. It always baffled me.
1: We talk about his obsessiveness and as you detail in your story this week he came upon this project this was going to be his project after the monstrous success of 2001 right and give us a taste because it's fascinating what you reveal in the story this week about the level of his obsessiveness which is as a rabbit hole he went down but almost a black hole he went down in terms of his research and the number of books he has it's just fascinating.
3: I think it was some 500 volumes of Napoleonic research which by some counts makes it the greatest private collection of Napoleon research on the planet. He had famously card catalogs with each index card, historical event, all of this stuff. He had symposia with Napoleonic scholars that went into such, such arcane detail. It's, truly incredible. Some of it I publish in the piece, but part of it is that directors on some level are, many directors are obsessed with war and generals for the reason that it's like directing, except no one dies. But other than that, up until death, it's very much like filmmaking. So there've been many, many movies about Napoleon since the silent era, famously Abel Gantz's movie, which is probably the best one. But Kubrick's unfortunately never got made. And if you read the script, it's actually sad because it's a really bad script. And it's sad to think that after all this research doesn't even come a project that seems to be worthwhile. It's a great lesson about the value of research in a creative undertaking. How much is necessary before you sort of obliterate the
1: imaginative part? Yeah, it's kind of that version of, I think when I read your story, one can Keep doing research as a way to tell yourself you want to make something great, but it also becomes a little bit of a writer's block. Or it's that old reporter's thing when your editor would say, you need to know when to stop reporting and just start writing the story, right? We know this very deeply as reporters in the nonfiction world.
3: I was told at one point, someone told me a grand answer. I said, when do you stop reporting? And I was told, when you start answering questions for the people you're interviewing when you already know the answers. Now, Kubrick took that to the point where he starts asking questions he doesn't know the answers to, but the questions are so absurd. Like in the case of the rhododendrons, which is how I start the story, whether or not the rhododendrons came from India or England, it's so hard to imagine why this is important to the soul of Napoleon, which is after all the responsibility of the director. It also brings up a lot of questions about who this man Kubrick is, and he's been a mystery from the beginning. Is he hiding? Why research for so long? You must be hiding for something. How is it that you don't have what you want already? Do you know what you want? If you don't know what you want, do you know who you are? I think these are very fair questions to ask around someone who dives so deep and long into this kind of a rabbit hole. I haven't seen the movie, Napoleon, so I'm not speculating on this movie or Ridley Scott or anything. It really is. It really is, I think, actually more about people, filmmakers, who take on these non-fictional historical subjects. And we've seen a lot of them this year. Why do filmmakers or any writer of fiction, why do they take on a non-fictional subject when they could just as easily invent? The themes that we're faced when we look at a movie about Napoleon or Leonard Bernstein or whomever the subject is, these themes are applicable to any work of fiction. So why call it Napoleon? Why not call it Bill and do your own general? So there is a way in which the filmmaker wants to be seen as someone who's encountering an important subject, important in quotes. It does open the door to pretension more readily than someone who's inventing
1: a story wholesale. Before you go off to see Waterloo, tell us about your latest Conquest, which is a great new book about who? Francis Ford Coppola.
3: It was Francis Ford Coppola who presented to the world the restored Abel Gantz version of Napoleon in the early 80s at Radio City and all over the world, which was a giant, triumphant success and is a really worthwhile, maybe even great Napoleon. But as a point of contrast with Kubrick, he's really interesting. Because while Francis, like any great filmmaker, is obsessive, or any great artist is obsessive, and I I don't want to say obsessive is the wrong way to go, you've got to be obsessive, but you also have to introduce an element of improvisation because you can't control everything, because then you get something that's stillborn. You can often get something that's stillborn. And Francis is a perfect example of. An obsessive who introduces the element of improvisation and chaos and the unknown into his creative process. That's part of why working with Francis is for so many people so rewarding, because he does the work, he does the preparation. He's as deeply involved as Kubrick, but he also invites the other person. His collaborators into the process and says, We don't know what's going to happen on this project. It really is an adventure, actually, a spiritual adventure. I mean, people talk about self discovery a lot. The term has lost its meaning, so I use it with trepidation. But Francis's movies, from Apocalypse Now to Godfather, all of these movies have changed the lives of the people who made them. And it's not true of every filmmaker. What I wanted to write about in this book is how filmmaking really is a utopian, undertaking, as Francis sees it. It's a way to build a community of creative and non-creative people and force them into, as we know in the case of Apocalypse Now, an environment that can change their lives. That's so important for us, the audience, because it means the movie will be fresh. It means the movie will very likely be the product of some new discovery in the person, not just a report, not just a following a color by numbers of the script, but actually alive with the vitality of the filmmakers. And not many filmmakers work that way because filmmaking is so cumbersome and so expensive. It's very hard to invite that element of real life. But that's one of the great virtues of Francis's utopian experiment in filmmaking. So that's part of what drew me to it and zoetrope the production company that really is for him to stage these experiments with real people which is what he's doing
0: well sam thank you so much we can't wait to read all about that thank you thank you
3: not
1: at all
0: that's why we love you
1: the book is the path to paradise coming out very soon and i should also just note as you say in your story sam if you want to see maybe some of the fruits of what kubrick worked on they show up in barry linden and that's another place but we'll come back to that another time so thanks for being here sam
3: Thanks, Michael.
0: Bye,
1: guys. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Thanks, Sam. Michael, I gave you a reading assignment, and it was...
1: The Stearns Are Listening, the first novel from poet Jonathan Wells. Correct.
0: It follows Benjamin and Dita Stern, two New Yorkers whose lives haven't turned out exactly as they might have imagined.
1: Their children have left the house, their careers are stalled, and as they scramble to figure out what it all means, their once troubled son, Giorgio, returns home at last.
0: It's an immersive book and an excellent way to spend a cozy night by the fire. The Stearns Are Listening by Jonathan Wells, published by Z Books and in bookstores everywhere i kind of can't wait to see this michael i am definitely gonna like hunker down into a movie theater with an extra large
1: tub of popcorn if you haven't seen the trailer it looks amazing look ridley scott joaquin Napoleon. Come on.
0: This is so weird, but did you know Ridley Scott is also a winemaker?
1: I did not know that.
0: No, me neither. I recently was invited to it in London that included a tasting of Ridley Scott's wines. I was sort of tempted to go.
1: Speaking of Ridley Scott, see, now this is where well, I would want to go to the Barbara Streisand book and check the index to see if Ridley Scott is mentioned. And I don't know, but we have an answer to it, right?
0: He probably is because almost anyone else on the planet has been involved in this book. It is the much anticipated memoir of Barbara Streisand. She has been working on it for 10 years and we read it so you don't. Have to. In fact, we created an index so you don't have to read it. And George Kalajirakis, a writer at large for Airmail, is here to tell us about how the Airmail staff parsed this up and came up with the conclusions that you need to know about. Welcome, George. Hi, George.
4: Hi, Ashley.
0: Hey, George, it's a Babs, Babs world. Were we waiting for Barbara Streisand's memoir or did it just appear out of the ether?
4: Well, it depends who you are, I guess. I mean, for some of us, it just appeared. But then I also heard that I think by her own admission, it was 10 years late or something. She's been working on it for quite a while. And it shows it's nearly a thousand pages long, but here it is.
0: Now, who do we have to blame or to thank for the fact that you and several of our colleagues spent the last few days immersed in this book? Was it Alexander Jacobs in the New York Times who issued a rallying cry for the old staff of Buy Magazine to make sense of this for us?
4: That's the first reference I saw to it. And I should have been put on alert when I read that some of our colleagues were going to think, oh, we should do that. The Spy World Index, which was done in 1989, was a lot of fun. I didn't have anything to do with that. I think it's real Bartleby work, probably back then below my pay grade, although clearly that's no longer the case. It was sort of a cry for help in that Times review. So airmail stepped up, five of us divided up the book, 200 pages or so each and tried to assemble the thing.
0: So in this index, which you all have meticulously put together, what were some of the most surprising things you encountered?
4: Well, I think the fun of it, well, first of all, her candor was pretty great. I mean, it's nicely written. She has very positive things to say about a lot of people, but also she's very frank about people she ran across, who she doesn't think much of. And not everyone in the book comes off well. And I like. That Maybe that surprised me in a way. When we did put it together, I think it's always fun to give equal weight to things that probably shouldn't be given equal weight to. Like, on the one hand, her discussion of movies and her recording career. On the other hand, discussion of ice cream and fingernails and her thoughts on chiffon or whatever. So you want to mix in an index.
0: Did she use a ghostwriter or did she do this herself? What do we know about the process of this memoir?
4: I don't know. That's a really good question. It certainly sounds like her voice. So if she did use a ghostwriter, it was a good job of channeling. Sort of an engaging book. And I'm not particularly a huge fan in any way. I admire her, but a voice comes across and it sounds like hers.
0: She spends a lot of attention talking about the men in her life over the years. The father, the husbands, the lovers. What were some of your favorite anecdotes?
4: Well, one of the great things, I mean, she talks a lot about the men in her life and Elliot Gould is all over the place because, of course, they were married. There are some great Marlon Brando anecdotes, but with a lot of the men in her life, she talks about their teeth, as it turns out, and this focus on dentition is something she admits to. I mean, she cares about people, people's teeth. And so there are a lot of references to people she dated or married or just worked with and whether they have great teeth or not. So there's a whole category of teeth in the index. And gosh, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of great stories. Back rubs with Marlon Brando eating ice cream with him. Her dalliance with Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, gets some attention. And the ups and downs with Elliot Gould, certainly. They were very young when they were together. But The friendship seems to have lasted anyway.
0: She also talks an awful lot about food. Who knew? She was not a cook, but she's in fact a voracious eater.
4: Yeah, she loves food. A lot about desserts, a lot about ice cream in particular. There's a whole incident involving bouillabaisse in Marseille. She had some bad bouillabaisse and the account of that actually extends over three pages in the book, which is maybe a clue as to why the whole thing is nearly a thousand pages long. But she's passionate about it, clearly cares about it. And that's kind of fun, the way that comes across.
0: She's also, George, one hell of a name, dropper. Who were some of the most unexpected personalities you came across in this?
4: Well, maybe it's not so unexpected in that she has an interest in politics and activism, but names like Nelson Mandela pop up as well as Robert Redford. And she's had a long and kind of fascinating career in life and met a lot of people. So again, part of the fun of the index is, I think, scrolling down it and just seeing this range of names and issues.
0: She also holds quite a grudge. Who do you think is going to be among the more upset people about the publication?
4: Yes. I mean, there were a few things. She felt that Sidney Pollock, for instance, if I'm remembering correctly, mistakenly cut a couple of what she saw as key scenes from The Way We Were and fought when it was reissued, even though Pollock had since died, to have the scenes reinstated. And a story like that just shows, I don't know if it's so much a grudge, but just sort of a determination to write things in her mind. And so she won that battle with the studio. She got the thing re-released with two versions. And it's sort of like the director's cut is now Barbara Streisand's cut. And there are certain people who don't come across well. I mean, Walter Matthau, does not. I don't think Ray Stark does, particularly. And these are names that pop up throughout the book. And I guess they would fall under the category of grudge.
0: Well, George, now that you've devoted so much of your time to Barbara Streisand and her universe, where do you fall? What's your conclusion? Should we actually read this book or can we just get away with reading your index?
4: I like the approach that we took with the others who read it, Michael Haney and Ted Heller, Jack Sullivan, David Camp. 200 pages each sounds about right. And then maybe have a little meeting and discuss what you've learned. For fans, though, the whole thing is worth reading, I'm sure. It's not something I would have read if not for the assignment. And as it is, I'm well versed on about one fifth of it only. But this is where the index can come in handy. Hopefully it'll give a sense of the entire book for those who don't want to read 972 pages.
0: George, I think this is why book clubs were invented is for projects like this. <laughs> Thank you so much.
4: <laughs> a pleasure.
0: Talk to you soon. Have a great holiday. Happy Thanksgiving.
4: Take care. Same to you. Bye. <laughs>
0: Michael, well, that's one thing you don't have to recommend this week. But speaking of a holiday weekend approaches, lots of great culture going on. So is there anything at all you can recommend to us?
1: Well, two things. One, I think we're both excited that the new season of The Crown has dropped this week. It's got it all. Princess Diana's death, 9-11, Queen Elizabeth's Golden Jubilee, deaths of Princess Margaret and Queen Mother, right? I mean, Ashley. You excited about it?
0: Excited is an understatement, Michael. It's truly the only thing on my mind.
1: But the other thing I do want to mention is something else I'm very, very excited about. Uh, Speaking of historical dramas, there's a new Audible book out, and it is James Elroy's epic 1995 novel, American Tabloid. If you know this book, it's the one where he chronicles the events surrounding these three rogue American law enforcement officers, and it culminates... Uh, on the killing with the killing of John F. Kennedy 60 years ago this month. Over the years, this book has been kind of the white whale in Hollywood. Everyone from David Fincher to Bruce Willis Tom Hanks, HBO have all tried to get their arms around it and they fail but where they failed, this Audible version succeeds. It's like a movie really in that the cast of voices that they've assembled, you've got Brian Cox, Alessandro Nivolo, Maya Hawk, Matt Dillon, our friend Elliot Gould, Ashley, uh, even Bobby Cannavale and Giovanna Ribisi. And then, best of all, you've got James Elroy himself who serves as the narrator and if you've never heard Elroy read, you're in for a treat just for that alone. It is amazing. It is 13 episodes 21 hours perfect for your long distance travel this holiday season uh, or whatever else you want to tune people out and it's like any and all of elroy's books it is amazing it is american tabloid by james elroy exclusively on audible where you can download it right now and ashley my dear what about you?
0: Have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon?
1: I have not. Have you?
0: Well, no, I haven't. I was hoping that you had so we could at least get your view on it. No, I will see it this weekend, though, and we can talk about it then, but I'm desperate to go see it. Okay, have you seen... You recommended it earlier, but I did just watch Lessons in Chemistry.
1: Yeah? Are you loving it?
0: Yeah, I'm loving it. It's like Julia Child plus Cook's Illustrated plus The History of Everything. What's not to love?
1: Plus Mad Men. It's just great, right? Brie Larson's oh wonderful.
0: I'm rethinking my entire wardrobe and my entire approach to cooking, actually. Like, I'm not a science person, but perhaps I should be in the interest of making a better lasagna.
1: And you actually learn like why leftovers taste better the next day, because it's good. I loved it. I am loving it. It's still going on.
0: Yeah, it's so great. I've actually been reading a book that came out a few years ago and it was recommended to me by our colleague, Linda Wells. It's called Easy Beauty and it's by Chloe Cooper Jones. She's a philosophy professor and a journalist from New York and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. But this is her incredible memoir about navigating life with a disability which she has and the ways that she sees herself and the way that she sees and understands others. And also it's a deeper meditation on what beauty really is and how it plays out in the world and in our experience and how our eyes attuned to it or not attuned to it. Anyway, so it's kind of got everything going on, but it's really thoughtful, very emotional, just beautifully written she was a finalist for the pulitzer prize in fact for this book and it's called easy beauty by chloe cooper jones thank you linda for the recommendation we wish you all a wonderful weekend thank you so much for joining us michael will you please read us out
1: yes but first we want to thank our sponsor Z Books. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co editors are Graydon Carter and Alison Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.